there, you're welcome back again to Colavare Creativity Series. And this is a podcast focused on exploring the world of creativity and innovation. You are welcome again to our second episode. I am Zika, and if you listen to the first episode, you probably already you know, you can recognize my voice. <laughs> I am facilitating this podcast series. And if you did not listen to the first episode, please, please, please do listen to it. It's available on Google Podcast, Audible, Deezer, Teacher, and um, on Colavari website, www.colavarisolutions.com. But let me just give a quick summary on the things that I learned from um, the first episode. I think two things were major. The first um, thing is that we are designed to be creative. And another thing that was emphatic is the fire model that Aziz used in describing creativity. It was amazing. Please go and listen to it so that you can get all the juicy details on what's creative means and i have aziz back again today with us hi aziz hello zika how are you doing i'm fine i'm excited what do you have for us for this second episode <laughs> today is going to be another interesting episode we will be talking about the myths of creativity and um we have we had an interview actually with david Borkus. He's a speaker, an author, and a professor at Oral Roberts University. So like I said, we had an interview with him. So we'll be sharing some of the excerpts from the interview with David, and we'll look deeper into some of the widely accepted myths around creativity. So Aziz, you have, what, what are your thoughts generally on um, some of these myths? I mean, for me, I think the issue of myths um, very important to creativity. Why? Myths are stories we have come to believe to explain things we don't clearly understand. Generally, myths are not true. Personally, I believe that the several myths around creativity have actually held people back from being creative. Yeah, that's very, very true. Hmm. Okay, so before Aziz gives us all his um, understanding on that, let's quickly go into um, listening to David introduce himself. Yeah, the easiest way I explain it is that I'm an organizational psychologist by training, which means that I study people and organizations and how they do their best work, how they get engaged in that task, how they solve problems, which creativity is a, is a massive part of. Uh, but I'm an organizational psychologist by training and a writer at heart. My undergraduate degree was in English and creative writing. And so what I've always sought to do is use storytelling and writing to teach those same lessons that come out of the world of psychology. Uh, and creativity is no different. I think there's uh, there's a wealth of research from the world of psychology and the people who have studied the, both the world's most prolifically creative people and then everyday creativity. And a lot of that information doesn't get translated over into practice because when you speak science, when you speak psychology, you don't often speak storytelling. And that's truly how most people learn and most people remember and learn to apply those lessons. So marrying those two ideas has been my focus for uh, over a decade now. Um, and it's been it's been a ton of fun. It leads me to meet really fascinating people like y'all. So let me put some context into um, how I met David. Remember in episode one, I mentioned that my journey started in 2015. Yeah. So in 2015, the first book I bought while trying to expand my knowledge on creativity was The Myths of Creativity. Oh, that book you gave me to read. Yes, that yeah. book. So, um, I mean, I, I remember buying a book and I read it. After reading it, I sent David an email no. because I wanted to know how to further my 
understanding of creativity. And I asked him if, if he could recommend any certification courses and, you know, of trainings or such. He told me that I should just focus on understanding more about creativity and suggested a couple of books and some resources, you know, to, to get more information. And that advice actually helped me because it allowed me to broaden my knowledge of creativity. It also did not make me... Um, um, I was not focused on any particular you know definition or method of creativity you know so the fact that i i was able to read wide and understand was very helpful for me and that's part of what you actually explained in episode one he did not give you like a direct answer yes if not you would have been limited but it helped you be more creative great that's amazing okay so and um, if i if i can add something this is also very important david had a podcast then called radio free leadership Okay. And um, it was, I mean, it was very, very interesting. For every episode, he interviewed, you know, guests. And a lot of the guests that he interviewed, some of them had books they had written. And um, my library today, um, a significant part of my library is made up of books that I bought from people who came to to David's podcast. David's yes. um, uh, David's podcast. That's that's interesting. Okay, so let's jump quickly into um, hearing David describe creativity in his own words. This is uh, should be easier than it probably is. I, I I said at the top, I'm an organizational psychologist by training, which means I've read a a ton from the folks that have spent their entire careers studying psychology. And here's what I've learned: they all have a different definition, and that's a little annoying. Yeah. What I have found is that the unifying thing is that they they use some words or synonyms of words that I think are worth honing in on. So if you ask 10 different psychologists or scientists who study creativity, you'll get 10 different answers. But all of them will say roughly the same thing, which is that it's the act of generating ideas that are novel and useful. Or sometimes they'll say new and valuable, right? Or original and worthwhile. Any, any combination, any synonym of those two things, right? It has to be new. It has to divert from the status quo. And then it also has to be helpful in the sense that it solves the problem um, that we are moving towards now. And sometimes that problem is just entertainment, right? So we think a lot about the creative arts, you know, music, theater, uh, movies, television, etc. cetera. Uh, so the problem they're solving a lot of times is entertainment. That's fine, yeah. but it, it's still useful, right? So new and useful are the two big words or novel and useful are the two big words that I tend to harp in on. Uh, and then anything around that, to me, it's just noise. It's just qualifiers. It's just additional stuff um, that people add to it. I mean, David's definition, again, highlights the two things that makes an idea creative, novelty and usefulness. Remember in episode one, we had highlighted that creativity is a process of coming up with a new idea that is useful. Yeah. It's very, very similar. But there's a definition that I came across recently that, you know, I found very interesting. And it's by a guy called Nathan Evans. He said, creativity is your ability to respond to changes in your environment. Now, the reason why I like that definition is that it takes it from uh, it takes creativity from a from a process of 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 choice to a process of right. So it's like it is the right of every human being to be creative. We all live in an environment that is constantly changing, and therefore we must be changing the way we respond to our environment. That's what makes us creative. I found that very very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. But one of the, the, the questions that was that had been on the top of my mind from when we started to plan this um, episode was 
how did we get to the point where we have to convince people to be creative because i remember in episode one the title of episode one is designed to be creative yes. so that means we are we are actually made to be creative yes so how did we then get to the point where people have to be convinced that they are creative zika that's a very interesting question you know you know we asked that to david yeah, yeah so let's did. let's let's listen to, to, to david's response right yeah <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, how much time we got? Uh, this is a long story. So, I mean, here's here's what I think. So the, the researcher E. Paul Torrance was one of the – he's passed away now, but he was one of the original um, amazing researchers on creativity. And he studied – particularly he studied creativity in adults and children as two different things. He developed uh, several creativity tests that are still used in child psychology. He developed the ADA, the Adult Torrance Test of Creativity, which is still one of the premier um, assessments for – uh, judging whether or not a certain intervention has an effect on creativity. Um, and what Paul Torrance said in all of his research is that uh, when you look in most schools in a, that are using a Western school system, right, right around fourth grade, the fourth year, so 10 years old, 11, 9 to 11 years old, somewhere in there, the creativity of children just sort of plummets, right? And, and I think the reason is that we, and we're well-meaning when we do it, we have a lot that we want to teach our children before they become adults. And and the fastest way to do that is to teach them what the right answers are. And so pretty quickly, the act of learning switches from play and exploration um, and actively kind of observing also to this is the right answer, regurgitate it and get it back. I mean, do you remember right around fourth or fifth grade for me was when uh, I was told I need to memorize my times tables, my multiplication yes. tables, the yeah. grid of like one through 12 and one through 12 and you just... Well, okay, but if that's all the work that I'm doing, that's memorization and regurgitation. You're no longer exercising my creative muscle, right? And and some people don't allow that to happen, right? Some people find uh, solace in the arts, whether that's theater, whether that's right. For me, it was English um, and, and specifically creative writing. Some people find it in music, theater, et cetera. There's, there are some people that find solace in those subjects, but I think it, it comes to that. The way that we bring people into adulthood now is very much, you need to learn that these are the right answers. And we do that at the sake of teaching them on their, their creativity. And so they arrive, they come to college. It, it goes even, it's even worse, right? Because now there are even more right answers and more subjects to learn, but eventually you narrow it down. You choose a major, you get your degree in something. Uh, if you're like me and you go on to graduate school, you it's even narrower. And a doctorate is is like knowing everything there is to know about an increasingly small segment of um, a particular issue. So it's an even more kind of narrower approach. All of that allows that creative muscle to sort of atrophy. And it's only the people that have resisted that. Unfortunately, what that turns into is adults who haven't used that muscle in so long, they assume it's not there. And they start telling themselves stories about why they didn't have a creative gene or they don't have a creative personality. But that's not the truth. The truth is they just fell out of practice. You know, how did we get here is a great way to ask that question. The, the, uh, the other side of that question I get asked all the time is, well, can you really teach people to be creative? And the answer I tell them is no. You can just teach them to take all the junk that they've accumulated off of themselves and think the way they did when they were a child. I've never met an uncreative kindergartner, but I know a lot of uncreative 40-year-olds. And the only difference is whether or not you're practicing it every day. Very interesting answer from David. Um, so I can see that our educational system and work environment in general has not helped us, right? Uh, I mean, this is my view. I think students get rewarded for conformity. Remember in episode one, I mentioned one of the reasons why creativity appears difficult is the issue of conformity. 
the human typically gravitates towards conformity. So um, our educational system kind of like rewards people for conforming to accepted norms and penalizes people who do not conform to that to those norms. So over a over a period of time, you find that people generally would conform to what has been accepted. They might have different views, but they do. They, it gets to a point where they no longer want to exercise those views. And like and like David said, over a period of time, you begin to doubt whether you know you are even creative. And I'll share a very simple example. I mean, I mean, they used to say, I really don't know how true this is, that the Earth was flat. Okay, so imagine you were a student at at, at that time when the whole the whole concept of the Earth being being flat was was accepted. If you were in school. And you had a different view, you'll be penalized for it, yeah. even though the earth was not actually flat. Yeah. So it's, it's the same today. We typically do not encourage people who have different views. Over a period of time, people no longer want to share those views. And so for me, I think this point that David raised was very, very, very interesting. Yeah, I think um, what you what you said and what he mentioned combining the educational system and the myths around creativity i think we understand why people have to be convinced yeah. because from school from like you said fourth grade yeah. you already your creativity is somehow being damned already yeah. so it's very clear but why do people believe this myths in the first place why do they have to believe it i think david had something to say about this as well so let's listen yes well, why do people believe any myths, right? Uh, myths are stories, uh, usually very old stories, but sometimes not, uh, that attempt to explain the world around them or that are told by a society in order to reinforce certain values, right? I mean, here here in the United States where I am, for example, we have this a wonderful myth about George Washington, our founder, chopping down a cherry tree and then not being able to tell a lie. So he fesses up to it, right? That never happened. Never happened. But we tell it to our kids because we want to connect the founding story and this honorific person to the value of honesty, right? So this is how we use myths. We, we use them in an attempt to explain things or an attempt to reinforce behaviors. And so the stories that people tell themselves about creativity rise to that first level, which is a story that helps you explain the world. If you haven't exercised your creative muscle in 30 years, right, since you were in elementary school and somebody and you encounter somebody else who does it on a consistent basis like you, right? you encounter that, the easiest story to tell yourself yes is that they have a quality that I don't have. Yeah. Not that not that yes. they have decades of practice and that's what makes them better, but just that they have a gene or a personality or they tell themselves some other story that lets them off the hook, right? Because it's an easier story to tell than doing the hard work of finding the truth, right? And so that's why I think, that's why I chose to call them myths. The stories, the, the way that I say it ever since writing the book is I often say the stories that we tell ourselves are true, even if they're not true. And all of the myths that are in the book are stories that not, not everybody tells themselves all 10, but all of us at some point or another have probably believed at least one of them and in believing that story have actually limited our ability to reach our creative potential and i don't think there's a grand conspiracy to tell people false stories i I think they just make it the, the truth is they let you off the hook right if you can just say oh i'm not very creative then then you don't have to participate in that brainstorming session, right? You don't have to take the workshop that you find yourself in the middle of. You don't have to believe this crazy guy telling me I'm creative. If you can just say, if you can tell yourself that, then you don't have to expose yourself to nearly as much risk of judgment as the people who are trying to solve problems by throwing out new and useful ideas are. 
right? And so I think that's the big reason a lot of adults tell themselves the story is it lets them off the hook. It, it makes them think, oh, it, it's supposed to be harder. So it's something that's not in the cards for me. It's something that I, it's not part of my job, et cetera. And, and that's a huge problem because it's everybody's job at this point. We don't, we solved all the easy problems in the world a long time ago. Now we just have the complex, wicked problems that need everybody's perspective. Uh, and that requires all of us to be able to start growing that creative muscle again. Wow, very interesting. <laughs> Why do people believe in myths? So th again, this is my view. Uh, I found out that the less clarity we have about things, the more we believe in myths. Yeah. Now, creativity is highly cognitive, okay? And the brain is one of the least understood part of the human body. Mm. Hence, we have myths as an easy escape route for explaining the things we don't understand about the brain. Mm. Again, I'll give you a very simple example. Um, I'm left-handed. Today, there are so many myths <laughs> associated with people who are left-handed. Some say they are more creative, they are more intelligent. Yeah. But you know what? I think in episode five or six, I'm going to talk more on this. So <laughs> let's let's wait until episode five. But again, like I said, the, the knowledge we have about about the brain, it's still developing and it's still unfolding. And therefore, we tend to accept myths that kind of like help us explain things that have to do with the brain. Yeah. I think um, David actually gave some explanation and some of his thoughts on some of this myth. So let's hear. Yeah. I mean, I've already, I've already hinted it at two of them, right? Which are these individual myths. I call it the breed myth. Um, is this idea that there's a creative gene or a creative personality. There's a certain breed of creative person. And, and this, and not, this doesn't always manifest in the sense that, oh, you have a personality that's creative. Therefore you are creative. Sometimes in organizations, we just treat this as a functional thing, right? We think that marketing is creative, but accounting is not, yeah. right? Uh, and yes. so we think about certain roles as creative. It's the same segmentation. It's an us versus them and they're the creative ones. And so I don't have to be right. Or the inverse, right? Which I think is really interesting is this idea uh, that I'm the creative one. So it's my job. And I, I disrespect the ideas of other people. Either side of that can be damaging, right? So I call that the breed myth, the belief that creatives are a certain breed or a certain type of person. That's not actually true. The other one I think is really probably the biggest one I see at play in organizations is we have this, um, I call it the lone creator myth, this idea that it's a solo endeavor, that it's just a matter of me uh, getting space to think or work alone uh, on a problem. But creativity is almost always at this point the result of multiple people. There probably was a time in human development where an individual's mind could do the research and solve the problem without any outside influences, Right. But that time has passed. If you look at like scientific papers, for example, the number of co-authors on the scientific papers keeps just going up and up and up and up and up because it requires collaboration. The problems we're trying to solve in the world now require more than one mind. The way that I phrase this in the book is that creativity is a team sport. It's not a solo athletic endeavor. It's almost always been a team sport. And we make a, we make twofold huge mistakes here, right? Number one, is we may not bring enough people on the team because we believe if we just get the creative people, then we have one or two people and we can solve it instead of involving more people. But I think the bigger thing we do on an individual level is if we tell ourselves that that creativity is this lone endeavor, which is not accurate, it's a myth, it's not the truth, then when we're trying to solve a problem on our own and we're failing, we feel like we're failing. 
But the truth is almost every creative person you hold out through history, whether it's whether it's, um, you know, Thomas Edison or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, whether it's Marie Curie or whoever it is, they almost always had a team around them. And as a result, they they wouldn't say that because they couldn't think of it on their own, they were failing. They knew they had the team. Right. But we put those individuals on a pedestal and think that if I'm not doing as good a job as they are alone, I'm failing. That's a huge problem because that will discourage people from continuing to work on their creativity, from continuing to work on a problem until they find the solution. When in reality, it's almost always been a team thing anyway. So find that team, that diverse group of perspectives that you can recruit. You're not failing. You're as smart as all of those other people that we have admired for their individual creativity, but it's actually been their ability to learn from the people around them and work together with them to solve problems. I cite Thomas Edison just because he's sort of this almost mythical person at this point, right? The modern day Edison might be your Steve Jobs from Apple or Elon Musk, right? Um, all, all of them are sort of the same. We have this idea of Edison that it was him working alone in a workshop, working on all of these different ideas. You know, when he says, oh, I... I tried 6,000 ways to find a filament to uh, to make the light bulb work. That's not actually true. I mean, in fact, even just saying Thomas Edison invented the light bulb is a lie. Thomas Edison was the 22nd or 23rd, depending on how you count, person to file a patent for electric light, right? He What he found was a sustainable way to produce electric light, but he built off of 20 patents that came before, and he had a team of people working with him at his um, at his workshop in Menlo Park, New Jersey, here in the United States, uh, he almost always had a team of almost a dozen people working alongside him on various different projects, right? And most of their names are also on those patents. So if you're willing to do the work and go wow. find the patents, right, their names are attributed there. Where they were never attributed was in the marketing. They figured out as a business mm. that the man, the myth, the legend of Edison working individually on my problem would bring in a lot, a lot of clients who would pay a whole lot more. And so they kept from those clients the idea that actually there's like 15 of us and we're all going to work on your problem, right? Um, and, we st- and we still do this uh, today, right? Uh, if you ask people about the iPhone, they cite Steve Jobs. You ask people about Tesla or SpaceX, they say Elon Musk. There are hundreds of people working for Elon Musk at SpaceX to make this happen. It's not like he's doing it alone in his spare bedroom, and it never has been. But we still like to tell the story that way for reasons I've never quite figured out other than it lets us off the hook and it makes us feel like, oh, uh, because I can't do it all by myself, I just can't do it and therefore I don't have to. No, you have to go find a team and collectively you have to solve that problem. Those are very, very insightful thoughts. Aziz, do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I'll speak briefly on the two meets David highlighted. Okay. The breed meet and the lone creator meet. Okay. Now, on the first meat the breed meat i mean if you read david's book he actually presents research that has been done this is research that has been done that found no evidence of a creative gene there is no evidence of a creative gene oh. very interesting no evidence of a creative gene okay now for the lone creator meat i mean he mentioned it people always say who created the light bulb Thomas Edison. So, yeah. what would be the right answer now, Zika? <laughs> Thomas Edison and his team. Exactly, it's his team. <laughs> yeah. Just the same way, you know, Musk did did not invent. I mean, it's not the it's not the one behind. Uh, yeah, he he's leading um, Tesla. Yeah. But everything that comes there, out of Tesla is by a group of, of people. Minds, yeah. Exactly. You know, so for me, I find that very interesting. 
And I mentioned I mentioned that in episode one. I said creativity is best fostered in a team environment. Yeah. That's my view. And that's how I that's how I think a lot of the innovations that we see around those, around us today came about. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so I want to take us back, but before we do that, um, we have to go on a quick break. We would like to hear from our sponsors and we will be right back. Bolivara Solutions is a people-focused human resources firm based in Nigeria. We are curious about people, learning, and innovation. We seek to build collaborative relationships with organizations in their quest to discover and develop the talents they require to win. We have a pipeline of candidates across key industry functions and strive to connect talents to roles that inspire them to excel. I was actually blown away as to how um, detailed, organized, transparent his process was. Hello, my name is Soba Fubara Abraham. Um, I work with uh, Synergy Capital, manage a private equity firm. To learn more about Colavera Solutions, visit our website at www.colaverasolutions.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Colavera Solutions. Okay, we are back. Um, this has been very interesting. Um, the point where we talked about the educational system. David mentioned that um, our educational system has contributed a lot to the issues we have today on yes, creativity. Totally and agree. I remember one of the questions that we asked him was, how can this be resolved? How can we resolve this? So let's hear what David had to say. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a problem I'm still working on, if I'm going to be totally honest. So my children are in nine and seven. Uh, when I wrote The Mist of Creativity, they were one and not in existence yet. And so, and so I've had the, the privilege of sort of watching them through. And we're not quite at that hump yet, right? They're not quite at that fourth grade hump. But there's a couple things that we've been trying to do. Um, the biggest is, is I am, I, I call it being intentionally lazy as a parent, meaning I'm not trying to structure too much in their lives. We have one thing we do once a week uh, that is an after school activity. And the rest of it is I'm trying to give them unstructured free time to play, to play with a lot of different things, especially play a lot of areas that are, um, that have lots of different options, right? So, and this isn't like, oh, make sure everybody only ever plays with Legos because you can play with Legos two different ways. You can follow the instructions or you can build your own thing. And it's the same thing with video games, right? I, I, my kids actually probably spend a lot of time playing video games, but I'm very careful which ones they play. I, I have them play the open world ones, the ones where you're building something with no instruction manual, not the ones where you're following a very dedicated path and repeating the same thing, right? Because I want them to cult, I want to cultivate that spirit of exploration, right? Um, the, the same way with I have, they, they watch, they watch more YouTube than they watch regular television at this point. But again, I'm paying attention to what channels they're paying attention to. My, my nine year old, we've cultivated this love of space and science in him that's partly by steering him that way, uh, through all of this exploration and, and partly on his own, which is great. And then we find things that kind of reinforce that. So that's, that's kind of on the small scale. Um, what we're trying to do to sort of counteract that where we're going to head is uh, I, I know that as they get older, we're going to, and it's really weird because I'm an organizational psychologist. So I was an undergrad English major. My wife is, uh, is an ER doctor, which is a very science field, but we're going to push them to always have an art 
added to their STEM education or what's often called STEAM now. And I don't know which one it's going to be, right? Whether it's music or, or writing or whether it's theater or whatever, but, but we are going to make sure that they find and they spend a decent amount of time in that once we're at the place in, in schooling in the school system where you can choose what other classes you take beyond the core curriculum. We'll be pushing them there because I think that's a place that still cultivates that um, exploratory and that expression thing a lot better. Um, so those are, those are our current plans. I'll be honest with you. Check back with me in like a decade to see if they worked. Uh, but I feel pretty good about them right now on those things that we're trying to do. Um, I'm also making like the, the simplest thing I learned is quit, kids are incredibly inquisitive and it can get annoying, right? Where they're, why is this this way? Why is this way? And you always have to come up with an explanation. Then you realize that, you know what? They get, they get seven or eight hours a day of other adults in their life telling them why certain things are. One of the things I do is I ask them back. Oh, daddy, why does this work that way? Well, why do you think that's the case? And then let them come up with an answer. It doesn't have to be right. I just still want to cultivate that skill in them of trying to come up with an answer instead of believing there always is an answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it would look, it would probably the first five years or so would look a lot like the Montessori programs education system now, which is very exploratory, um, very much what do you, what do you sort of want to learn today, et cetera. Um, I understand the need to cram a lot of information into their, uh, into their minds in a short period of time, right? You, I mean, you talked about this, or you said you talked about this in the past episode that you do have to have some level of domain expertise. So I get that. Um, but I think we ought to have a much more, um, open-ended curriculum. I think we ought to let people pick what classes they take a whole lot sooner in their life. For most people, it's not even until college level, maybe a couple classes in high school that you get a choice for. Um, I, I think there's no reason why it can't be easier or earlier. You usually have to show proficiency in something in order to get into a specialized school for that if you want to go any younger. And I don't know that that's right. I, I would rather give them uh, sort of a, a a ton of different options and let them choose which ones as long as they're inside the basics um, let them choose which ones they they learn if they resonate with music it's possible to teach people math by teaching them music it's totally possible um and if we do that we may engage their love of music more and not just sort of crush it right so i think um i think those would be the big things um that i would redirect for what, what we would call here in the United States, middle school and high school is I would just make it possible to explore a whole lot more options for classes than just kind of that core. A lot to digest from David's answer. Yeah. But I, I would emphasize a couple of points that struck me. I think the first one is the need to cultivate an exploratory mentality. Remember in episode one, I had mentioned that team leads should encourage their members to break rules. Remember? Yeah. It's it's really, that's the mentality behind it. Yeah. So rather than always encouraging people to conform to, to norms or rules, you want to give them opportunities to think outside, outside of, of those rules. rules. What yeah. they are basically trying to do, you are making them think beyond what is normal or what is accepted. You are encouraging their creativity. So for me, that was very, very strong. Secondly, was the point on I mean, I'm guilty of this, okay? Um, every time somebody asks a question, there's this thing inside of me that is my responsibility to, to provide a ready-made answer. Yeah. You know, but I'm understanding that in some situations, that might not be right. Yeah. We also want, we want to encourage people to think. And I think in a work setting, this is very important, where you have um, um, team leaders, have people working with them, and every time they face a challenge, they, they come to the team leads for direction. Hey, 
as a team lead, you could turn the table around and ask them, what how you would think? you, yeah. how would you address this? What if you have this and this? How would you address this? So for me, that was very uh, was was part of. It. And lastly, was the point on having on having an open-ended curriculum that encourages exploration in our school system. Yeah. I find that very interesting as well. Zika, what about you? I was going to say that because when you mentioned, when you referred to what you talked about in the first episode about team leads encouraging their team members yes. to break rules, yes. I feel like it starts from, you know, the school system. When you're in school as a child, growing, you are, um, if, there, if there's that... Um, that system that encourages children in schools to think outside of the regu- the usual two plus two is four. Yeah. You know, and then same thing in high school and tertiary institution. So by the time people get into labor force or labor markets or start working, it's an environment they're used to. So they don't it's have not strange. to it's not strange. Yeah. And even when problems come up, they don't have to run to their team leaders. They they will think about how can this be done. They call other team members and it just becomes something that is normal with them. I think that's something that we need to um inculcate and bring into our system of education. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so, I mean, I think in David's book, there were, he, he looked at 10, 10 meats, and we, I mean, from, um, he's talked about the breed meat and, and the lone creator meat. meat. Yeah. But my favorite meat is the mousetrap meat. <laughs> Ma- the mousetrap meat. Okay. And I'll tell you why this is my favorite meat. People always believe that when you come up with a new idea, the world will celebrate you. Yeah. I have found that <laughs> not to be true. In fact, it is it is so not true. Mm. When you come up with something new, people would look for ways. It's not as if it's deliberate. It's like there's this it's like this thing is ingrained in humans to just not believe anything that is new. So when you're coming up with anything new, the the, the easiest part is coming up with, with the idea. The most difficult is actually convincing people, people. that that idea works, okay? Mm, yeah. So let's listen to David talk about this uh, mousetrap meat. <laughs> yeah, this is, meat. this is, on some days, this is my favorite myth too. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. Is it's, the, it's I think, the most important one to solve inside of organizations uh, because it affects all of the others. So the mousetrap myth, it's taken from that phrase, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door, right? This idea that we'll, if you have a great idea, everything is easy after that. And if you ever talk to somebody who's tried to bring a great idea into the world, it's never true. It never works out that way. It's never actually that easy. I mean, for, for it, it, and it's amazing. To this day, I get, I get emails from people who are starting up companies that are in line with ideas that I've talked about in books and what have you. And the, some of them will say, well, I'd love to talk to you about it, but first you need to sign this non-disclosure agreement. Like, what? Well, yeah, I don't want anyone to steal my idea. Like, first of all, there's seven other people working on your idea. I guarantee it, right? And, and second of all, if, yeah. if your idea is any good, your problem will not be someone stealing it. Your problem will be how you shove it down people's throats and convince them to change the way they're doing business now to your new and better system. That's almost always how it works, right? In organizations, this manifests as what's sometimes called the hierarchy of no. I'm an individual employee. I have a, I have an idea. I submit it to my boss. Maybe my boss approves and submits it another level up, or maybe he or she just tells me, well, that's not how we do things around here. Or, well, we don't really have the time or the budget. Or, well, these are some crazy times right now with COVID. I don't know if we can do any new initiatives right now. We tell them all sorts of things that dismiss their idea right off the bat. 
because because for two reasons. One, we think that we have the ability to recognize a great idea. We don't. We've proven this in numerous different studies now that remember our definition of creativity at the top, novel and useful. Well, it turns out as humans, we have a terrible time reconciling those two things in our mind. If something is new, we have nothing to judge it by. So we use our past experiences and our past experiences are going to favor our past behavioral patterns. So we're not going to like the new. We're going to like the old way that we solve things, right? So our default is usually yeah. to say no when we're presented with a new idea. Um, the other thing that can happen, unfortunately, is if you're quick to judge an idea that somebody on your team or somebody in your organization presents to you, you send this subtle message that new ideas aren't welcome here. And eventually people learn to stop. Yeah. If they came into your organization creatively, they learn to stop being that creative moving forward. That's a problem as well. That's that's almost as big a problem as, as the faulty belief, right? So the mousetrap myth is sort of the bottleneck for a lot of people for creativity. We can teach you to be more exploratory. We can teach you all these different idea generation techniques, et cetera. But unless we change your organization to be one that recognizes that you already have great ideas now and we're not doing a good enough job capturing them, nothing will change in the long term. Um, so that's why I said I, I'm, I'm flattered that it's your favorite. It's it's also my favorite, but only on some days, right? Because some days I really hate that it's still a problem. So as you were speaking, it just it was just very funny. The that myth is called mousetrap. It's really mousetrap yeah. because you feel like your idea will be accepted. Yes. But truly the issue is would people, you know, take accept this and yeah. change from what they have originally been exactly. doing yeah. that is the real issue yeah. and, and sorry i'm just emphasizing and, and this is very important remember i had mentioned this um in episode one you know people are already used to a certain way exactly. of doing things you understand so just suddenly bringing something a new idea that yeah <laughs> the real work is really convincing people yeah. that the new idea works and that takes time you remember yeah, we talked about the high jumper dick frosby yeah you understand even his coach try to persuade him from using the frosby flop style you want to need to continue using the straddle you understand until years of consistent sticking to the frosby flop before the coach accepted so it's so easy it's the same thing you you know what i've even found out at times those closest to you are the ones that would resist your new idea the most that's what i found yes strangers might be willing to accept your new ideas but those closest to you yeah might be the ones that would resist your new idea the most. That's mm-hmm. what I found out from my experience. So shout out to all our friends and family. Please be more receptive of our ideas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, it's been a very, very interesting conversation and um, we're rounding up. And um, before David actually, because he gave us some practical tips on ways to improve our creativity. But before he does that, we want to hear him t- tell us about his new book. He has a new book, Leading from Anywhere. The last year has been a little crazy for, for most of the world. And, and a lot of my work uh, comes from around the study of teams, how teams can collaborate and interact. And so teams for most people in a knowledge work economy moved into some form of remote, whether that is seeing less of them because we're social distancing or seeing none of them because we just close down the office and don't let anybody come into it. Um, almost everybody's been having to collaborate without being in the same room as anyone else for almost a year now. And so uh, around around May of last year, we started working on a project to say, what, are the, what do we know from the research and what can we make practical to help people in the moment right now? Um, that turned into a book we call Leading from Anywhere, the Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams, which is is not about what software you should use and not about what, but it's about 
how the team dynamics and the psychology behind your team, what dilemmas you're going to face when you can't be face to face with your people and how you should solve them. Um, it's, it's also by the way, secretly, it's really fun to do this podcast because it's also the only thing I've been talking about for like a year, because this is the problem that is um, most salient in everyone's mind. So it's kind of fun to take a break and talk creativity for a bit. Um, but the truth is I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, if I didn't mention that it was out there, it's a collection of, of some of the best research on remote teams and also some great ideas pulled from companies that have been functioning fully remotely for decades now uh, in how they do it. So if you are in that situation where you have no idea when you're going to be able to work with your team, um, I would encourage you to, to check it out leading from anywhere. Okay. I have a copy of the book. Um, I would advise everybody to get a copy. The book is titled leading from anywhere. I think that book will be relevant even post COVID. Because a lot of workers will not want to go back to exactly. work. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess we can listen to the practical tips from David now. Yeah. Zika, yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. So let's listen to David. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I think about this often, right? Because when we talk about this from a broad psychological standpoint, it's often hard to go, okay, well, I don't believe the lone creator myth anymore. What should I do? I don't believe it. And so I thought the exactly. easiest way. To- the easiest way to sort this is into a do and a don't. So I'm going to give everybody listening one do and one don't. Actually, let me flip it. I'm going to give you a don't and I'm going to give you a do, right? The first don't okay. is don't assume that you understand the problem. We might call this the brainstorming myth in the book, right? But what we have this tendency to do is as soon as we realize there's a problem, we go to solve the problem that's right in front of our face. More often than not, the problem is is back from that. It's downstream from that. It's something triggering that. And what we're actually thinking about is a symptom of the larger problem. In the book, I talk about the design firm continuum and their concept of a phase zero, which is whenever a client comes to them with a problem, the first thing they do is not trust the client and go back and do their own research on what might be causing that problem. And if you can do that, you're going to do a couple different things. The first is you're going to be solving the actual right problem. But the second is that you'll understand the constraints, you'll understand the limitations, you'll understand how to judge whether or not you found a good solution if you truly understand the problem, right? Okay, so that's my don't. That's my super practical don't. Don't assume you know what the problem is. Take the time before you try and generate a bunch of ideas to truly learn everything you can about what might be causing that problem. And you may realize you have to solve a totally different problem. Now, the do is pay attention to uh, what sometimes my friend Todd Henry calls your stimulus. Pay attention to who you're talking to, what you're reading, what you're paying attention to. I believe this was my advice to you right off the bat five years ago, right? Which is that we know, I call this a different myth. Um, we know that unlike what a lot of us think, ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. The belief that they are not is called the originality myth in the book. It's this belief that great ideas are this wholly, fully formed thing we've never seen before. It's not true. They're almost always an incremental improvement on an existing idea or a new combination of pre-existing ideas. That means the people who learn the most and the fastest win, right? So do pay attention and make sure that you're having conversations with diverse groups of people who have diverse uh, wealths of knowledge. Make sure that you're reading from a lot of different sources, not just your industry, but a lot of other industries. Make sure you're taking time in all in, to learn whatever you are interested in. And then even a few subjects you don't ever think will actually be useful. I just finished taking a course about improvisational comedy, even though I have no desire to do that. But I figured there's a couple things I could probably pick up from that world, right? So always be consuming yeah. from a diversity of sources and you will have 
a wealth of raw material to draw from when it comes time to generate ideas and solve a problem. You'll, you'll, you're more likely to find new and original combinations of ideas. So those are my, my don't, my don't and my do. My don't, don't assume you know what the problem is and just jump right into brainstorming. Take the time to research it and do expand where you're learning from and who you're learning from to make sure it's diverse enough to give you the raw material of ideas you need to make new and original combinations of those ideas. So I will just share some of my insights. So for the first one is do not trust the problem you are facing. Do your own investigation. And I'll give a very um, simple example to explain this. The Nobel Prize for Economics in 2019 uh, was by uh, three three people, um, a couple and a and a third guy. And um, I mean they had they did research in several things, but I will just share in one of the areas that their research focused on. In a part of India, the founder that the immunization rate um, were dropping. And this was in a situation where there were a lot more access and there was a lot more opportunities for people to have their kids immunized, but it was still dropping. Now, the logical solution would have been to find ways to expand, right, Zika? Expand them, um, you know, the reach for immunization, right? Well, mm, well, okay. yeah. Or create more awareness. But what they did was very, very interesting. Now, people had access to immunization for, I think, for seven days. One of the things they did to improve the immunization rate was to reduce the number of days that people could get immunized. And for those particular days that people could get immunized, they had an incentive for people to come. So, to improve immunization rate, they actually reduce the number the, of days yeah. for immunization. You understand? So it become a needed thing. Exactly. So yeah. they, they, so the problem wasn't just an awareness issue. They understood the problem. That's, that's why they were able to come up with a solution that actually addressed the problem. You know, useful. I mean, yeah. So I found that very interesting. And secondly, the second point that David mentioned is the fact that we should expand our scope, learn from diverse people. Now, the reason why this is important is because in episode one, I had mentioned that research has shown that people who read outside their field and their scope tend to be more creative. So, I mean, David is also emphasizing that point again. Zika. <sighs> okay, I had a lot of things to write down, but um, I'll just say a few things that and I've learned just to summarize. I think the first thing David talked about is it's very it's harder to solve a problem when we believe some of these myths surrounding creativity. Yeah, in the first place. So um individuals have the responsibility of exposing themselves to things that help them explore think and create outside of what is usual and as well the responsibility to people around and i think the second thing he mentioned that was the highlight for me as well is creativity thrives on teamwork we mentioned that in the first episode as well there's really never a lone creator like the success of any idea is in collaborative efforts so that is very very important and on that note we're going to acknowledge our own team <laughs> but before we do that we'd like to really really thank and appreciate david david borkas thank you so so much for granting this interview it was a very insightful one and we look forward to engaging you in the future okay back to acknowledging our team <laughs> so um the 
Editing and the sound production of this podcast is by Joshua Praise. The soundtrack is an original from Justo Christos. And the poster design is done by Faith Folari and Joseph Okafo. It's been a very, very interesting um, episode. And like we said in the beginning, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and listen, share with your friends if you love them enough, because everybody needs to hear this. The podcast is available on Google Podcast, Audible, Deezer, Stitcher, and on Colavari website. You can also follow us on Instagram. And on Apple Podcasts on as well. Apple Podcast. Okay. Thank now, you. Now, the reason why Apple is that with Apple, you could give um, your reviews and your ratings. Oh, great. Great. So please, and we really, really, really want, we want to see that your ratings and your reviews, because we had reviews from the last episode and it was really helpful and then um, please you can also follow Colavari Solutions on Instagram at Colavari Solutions and on LinkedIn as well so thank you so much for listening and until the next episode have a very creative week bye